welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 36. Great episode this week. Really interesting guests. I feel like I say that every week, but hey, I think that they are interesting guests. I'm the one inviting them. So with... um. With every episode, I, of course, have to, you know, do this little song and dance, this little spiel in which I implore people to uh, subscribe to the Counterpunch print magazine. Um, I do say it and I do mean it because the magazine is a great way to fund Counterpunch. It is a great way to keep Counterpunch going. I mean, truthfully, I don't know how many other alternative media outlets there are that we can look to and trust for real solid analysis, great perspectives on a wide variety of issues, including oftentimes competing uh, perspectives, ones that are 180 degrees opposed to each other. Very, very uh, worthwhile endeavor. Support Counterpunch any way you can. Of course, you can donate through the website, get a subscription to the print magazine. It's now bi-monthly. The, uh, the magazine is long the magazine is better the artwork is always great the columns everything so please do consider it also support counterpunch radio give us a positive review on itunes those of you who have i'm really appreciate it um it's tough getting a podcast out there in the world and bringing it to people uh so any support we can get on that front is tremendously appreciated uh with that out of the way i do want to turn to my first guest i'm really excited to have him on the show. I've been uh, chatting with him just before we started recording, and I'm like sitting here like, damn, I should have been recording all of this. It's all gold. It's gold, I tell you. His name is Alexander Reed Ross. He is the editor of the 2014 anthology Grabbing Back Against the Global Land Grab, available um, wherever great books can be gotten. And uh, also the forthcoming book Against the Fascist Creep coming out this May from AK Press. Uh, he is the co-founding moderator of the Earth First Newswire. He tweets at uh, um, specifically on Twitter at a Reed Ross. Uh, so, with all of that said, Alexander Reed Ross, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks very much, Eric. Um, so, lots to talk about. You got a book coming out called Against the Fascist Creep. Now, we all know that fascists are creeps, but tell us what you mean by that. Well, I mean that there. Well, there's there's two different ways of using creep, right? It's uh, there's there's an individual, you know, who's kind of trying to fit in, but also there's a little bit of a, you know, alter ego, or there's a little bit of a, a another agenda going on, and then there's a, a, a creeping fascism, you know, um, and that's what we're studying here. What 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 we're writing about is uh, how fascism crept into power in the 1920s and 30s and how it's tried to mount the same sort of uh, creep after the the Second World War and uh, has actually achieved a, a, a certain degree of success. Absolutely. And of course, you know, famously, we know of a specter haunting Europe, uh, the famous lines that, uh, you know, <laughs> historically very memorable. But in fact, there is a specter in Europe, and there has been for a long time. And in many ways, I think it's 
maybe reemerging now as we speak. And so that's part of the reason why I really wanted to get you on the program to talk a lot about not just the history. I think that's really important. And we're going to dive into some of that, but also how that really relates to uh, a lot of the things that we're seeing today. So before we get into the contemporary stuff, I do want to ask you a very general question. Um, what drove you to study this issue? I mean, why the fascist creep? Why now? And, you know, what I, What was the motivating factor for saying, I got to write this book? Well, it's interesting. I guess uh, some of it has to do with my family, my upbringing. Um, my uh, grandmother is or was Jewish and actually raised in Palestine. Um, and so I, I actually do have family that was, uh, lost in the Holocaust. And, um, my grandfather fought in world war II um, with the, uh, British army. And so I do have a history of, uh, my family being anti-fascist, if a bit conservative. And, um, I personally sort of have been in the radical environmental movement for some time and noticed, uh, particularly, you know, around Occupy and after Occupy, an increasing um, pressure um, to sort of recognize either themes of or people who really attach themselves to themes of uh, the national rebirth or, or rather ultra national rebirth, which is not framed in terms of nation states, but rather in terms of, um, national heritage, uh, sort of genetic, um, affinities with, uh, uh, religious revivals, mm -hmm. you know, like ethno nationalism, uh, ethno national. Sure. Um, and, that, you know, uh, combined with the sort of uh, environmentalist uh, understanding leads to really sketchy places like the uh, blood and soil, volkishness and, and that kind of thing. And um, the more that I started to uh, analyze and uh, uh, research this type of thing, the more it alarmed me. And then uh, AK, I, I wrote a couple of articles about it and AK Press contacted me and um, asked me if I wanted to write a book about it. Um, and I said, yeah, you know, that's pretty much where I'm going with my with my work right now. So that's that's where we're at. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot there's a lot there. I just revealing a little bit of my uh, of my own background. Um, my grandfather also uh, fought in World War Two for the for the Red Army for the Soviet Union. And he was a highly decorated um uh, decorated with the Order of the Red Banner, which is like one of the highest awards that they gave for heroism and all kinds of other things. I have family that was killed in pogroms in Belarus and Ukraine, family that died in the Holocaust in Babi Yar and all throughout. So I have a particular, um, not just an interest, but I think, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a gravitational pull towards a lot of these issues. And I, like you, notice a lot of these tendencies 
tendencies, not just around Occupy Wall Street, with which I was, you know, active in, but uh, or just the Occupy movement. But you see a lot of that in the social media space as well. Everything from the preponderance of, you know, Rothschilds run the world memes to, you know, global Zionist conspiracy theories and Illuminati and all of this stuff, which at one point could have been relegated to the, you know, uh, nut job recesses of the internet, but actually they're, they're in many ways penetrated into very much the mainstream activist world. Yeah. I think that social media tends to do that. Uh, people who have a very sort of pugnacious, more radical than you approach, um, take advantage of a kind of a horizontal environment and social media to kind of pull the rug out from under people who are, you know, more moderate or trying to talk about common sense uh, things that can be done in order to completely reframe the conversation about um, things that don't really go anywhere and tend toward a, a sort of a conspiratorial view of the world. Yeah, and and again, it's not just it's not just uh, the conspiracies themselves, because of course anybody who you know knows the history of you know even just the twentieth century knows how many conspiracies are very real and how all of these things sort of emerge uh, over the course of you know the, the study of history. The more we the more we learn about them, but it's not the conspiracies themselves; it's the idea of a global cabal orchestrating yeah. everything at all. <laughs> times that is where you then get into what i would consider to be this sort of fascist territory where you have people right. who will you know for instance shroud themselves you know in palest pro-palestine activism and then you start talking to them and all of a sudden hey didn't you know that everything is a jew war yep yep i mean like it's surprisingly um hegemonic actually you know there's people like mel gibson who have like produced really weirdly nationalist sort of historical dramas and you know it turns out that they're like raging anti-semites and they get kind of let off the hook and they're still in the sort of christian circuit um but uh the the more sort of plain that people are about it the more excluded they are from the mainstream but um unfortunately yeah in, in the activist world it's just uh uh it's it, it, a little bit of a minefield sometimes yeah exactly and again it's not just around that issue you know and i mean it's not you know it's like david ike and the lizard people or it's the freemasons or it's the illuminati or whatever but they're all really just iterations of the same conceptual framework through which people uh, understand, you know, sort of how the world works. And the problem with that is that it sort of detaches itself from material reality, from the objective, you know, real world that you live in, the observable world and all of the rest of that, whether you want to have a Marxist understanding of it or some other understanding of it. When you get into the conspiracy world, all of that goes out the window. Absolutely. And it also sort of uh, casts a shadow on, on things that are real and that have happened and that are almost unbelievable. I mean, the U.S. only uh, recently is uh, declassifying some of the information on the Argentinian dictatorships during the Dirty Wars, you know, Videla and people like that. And um, um, Operation Condor was seen as a, a conspiracy theory until uh, information about that was released 
Um, similarly, Operation Gladio, uh, Operation Paperclip. I mean, these things that are actually uh, terribly true and have a lot to do with the expansion of the post-war uh, fascist uh, movement um, are sort of brushed aside because, um, ironically, uh, fascist conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah, fascist conspiracy theories concealing the fascist conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty, it's kind of a pain in the ass when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, since you mentioned it, I think that's a good place for us to start. Um, you mentioned Operation Paperclip. Um, I, just so that I under so that I know that listeners are on the same on the same page. Tell us a little bit about Operation Paperclip. What happened after uh, World War II ended and the U.S. really scooped up a lot of these fascist uh, uh, leaders, fascist operatives, uh, for the purposes of what we come to know as the Cold War? So tell us a little bit about that and how that relates to some of the things we're seeing even today. Uh, I mean, Operation Paperclip is pretty specific. Uh, it was basically after the war... Um, the West and the Soviet Union split up um, the Nazi science community uh, so that, you know, England and uh, the U.S. and Canada got some Nazi scientists, I think thousands, um, and uh, the Soviet Union got its Nazi scientists and, you know, they helped a lot with the uh, rocketry programs and things like that. Um, it's pretty, pretty tragic in a lot of ways. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's Operation Paperclip, but, um, it was also interfused with a lot of other things. I mean, the, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. The, the CIA was, uh, um, very nascent at that time. It was transitioning from the OSS and, uh, Alan Dulles, uh, was, uh, Part of it, John Foster Dulles, of course, his brother, um, were really trying to uh, dig in the heels of capitalist hegemony in contradistinction to Soviet hegemony, um, and so they they brought into the fold of the Allies. Uh, numerous Nazis, uh, in particular Reinhard Galen, who was uh, Hitler's spy chief. And um, they got Galen to maintain this network of uh, stay-behinds, um, which were fascist officials who were let off the hook after the war and given information about ammo dumps and things like that and told, you know, if you get the 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 word on x day um that or x year or whatever um then you know use get these these munitions get these uh weapons and and start fighting against you know this list of uh soviet or socialist agents so it was really an attempt to um to entrench uh a counterinsurgency movement in Western Europe that would be able to fight against a Soviet invasion or the seizure of power by the fifth column, you know, leftist parties. And uh, so Galen ended up becoming the uh, the head of the, um, what is it, the Bundesreich or something like that, the, the, the um, German um, secret service. 
And uh, similarly, in Italy, there was a pretty complicated um, network of people within the government and uh, uh, neo-fascist groups outside of the government that were involved in attacking infrastructure points in order to drive people further to the right wing and away from Communist Party or the popular front even, you know. Yeah, and and so essentially what we're really talking about then is a long-standing policy or, you know, initiative by the Western powers, in particular the U.S. and the U.K., basically mobilizing and or controlling as assets various fascist tendencies, fascist formations and and grouplets from the somewhat small and irrelevant to the actually quite significant and and, and powerful for the purposes of fighting what, what could be called, I guess, a dirty war against communism. Right. And it was actually, well, it was, it was definitely connected to the, to Operation Condor in um, Latin America, the, uh, the, um, there was another guy, Otto Scorzani, who, uh, was part of the, um, uh, 1943 rescue of Mussolini from some Alpen ski resort, no central Italian ski resort, um, using gliders, um, and then, uh, joined the SS and Galen, in uh, the Eastern Front and then was also part of the Battle of the Bulge, uh, committed some war crimes and then was sort of um, used in a way by the Allies in order to create to help this network and also create the Odessa rat lines that brought um, Nazi war criminals like Klaus Barbie uh, over and, and Mengele over across and, and Eichmann over across the Atlantic, over to Argentina, mm-hmm. where where Juan Perón, who was very influenced by Mussolini, a lot of people think he was a para-fascist, um, basically turned a blind eye. Or even, you know, some of these guys wound up in Peronist uh, um, periodicals and in high places of power. Um, so... Uh, the the there was a famous famous connection for example where Klaus Barbie was helping the Condor linked government of uh, Bolivia along with uh, Stefano della Chiai who was a uh, uh, Italian neo fascist um, they were coordinated through Franco's Spain and Salazar's Portugal both of which were questionable you know whether para fascist or fascist most people go most people call them para fascist regimes well let's not split hairs here <laughs> no i think i think that descriptively you know on a on a on a on a descriptive level it helps to to uh define uh terms because fascism is like an extremely complicated um ideology when you actually get to it and 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 like for example um so, so we know about National Front, right? The um, is a typical uh, tactic or organization, um, an assemblage, if you will. That was what um, Francisco Franco um, created—a National Front, which in- included the Royalists, uh, and it included, you know, Carlists, and it included um, uh, the the uh, the fascist Falange. Uh, Spanish Falange. But if you look also in Germany, uh, Gregor Strasser, who was uh, supposedly left wing of the the Nazis, but not really leftist at all, 
um, proposed to have a, a similar broad front, a national front, basically, um, which united the what was called the neoconservatives of um, the, the radical right in Germany with the Nazi party and under the army's leadership of... Um, what uh, uh, von Schweitzer? Uh, no, 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 Schleicher. Von Schleicher. So um, it, this was rejected actually by the Nazi Party because they did not think it was fascist enough. Yeah. So, so when you have things like these these national fronts with uh, sort of neoconservative involvement or uh, revolutionary conservative involvement and um, entrenched sort of traditionalist Catholic interests and things like that, then, you know, the, 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 the ideal, the ideology starts to get a little bit murky. And obviously the, the concern is that such a national front will turn increasingly fascist, you know, as if, you know, fascism is an ideology of betrayal. So how could it not? But in the case of Franco, I mean, he basically, presided over the government quite happily without, you know, ever necessarily committing to uh, an absolute fascist regime after World War II, particularly because it was, you know, he was trying to deal with the U.S. still and and going fascist at that time was uh, um, unpopular. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And I was I was sort of uh, joking when I said, let's not split hairs here. But I do agree with you that. Secondarily, I think also we should keep in mind that the word fascism, like all words, but in particular uh, fascism itself, I think it's taken on new meanings over the years, over the decades, and certainly uh, since Mussolini's time and since Mussolini defined, you know, the 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 fascio, you know, the the the, the corporate state, as it were, uh, and I think that fascism and the word fascism, whether with a capital F or a lowercase f, I think that. Oftentimes we do have to flesh out even just what what that word means. Is it strictly adhering to the Mussolini definition of a corporate state or is it a more general term to describe a set of tactics, political tactics, a set of ideological uh, worldview? You know, I mean, it, it has a number of meanings. Yeah, I think I mean, even with Mussolini's definition of a corporate state, I mean, um, um, fascism in, in Italy, you know, he, he started to talk about fascism in quotation marks, uh, in like 1914, um, at the dawn of, of world war one. Um, and the idea of the Faschio goes back to like Faschio Operai, uh, and it goes back to like the uh, Sicilian Faschios, you know, it just basically, it just means league. And I think what Mussolini liked so much about uh, Fascio idea was that this sort of like machismo of it, you know, the the idea that, you know, this is what we do, you know, in Italy, we get out there, we form a league, and then we like, you know, we do it, you know, we seize power. Well, wasn't there uh, also, but correct me if I'm wrong, but what, the other aspect of that is that the term is a Latin term going dating back to the time of the Caesars uh, and the and the, the the kingdom actually right. the Roman kingdom before even the Republic. Well, that's right, exactly. So, uh, so really, it's not just it's not just you know a form of state organization or even of the making of political you know league or anything like that. It actually is calling back upon a proto-nationalism in italy right 
Well, it's both. I mean, um, the, it's 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 about how the nation forms. They, they say that I think it's Vico who talks about Gian Battisti Vico, um, who talks about the uh, the origins of the the fast guy being like when the the family came together in ancient Rome. Um, and united, they were uh, uh, bound to defend one another from the the tribes around them. Mm. So the, each of the lictors around the the, the kind of like the rods that are bound together um, with the axe usually in the middle uh, represents each of the the heads of the family, the patriarchs. And so the 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 fast guy symbol is the symbol of the defense of the entire community by the unity of the patriarchs. And it was given to Roman senators during the the Republic who had the most children. Mm. So it was seen, and it was also, of course, it was uh, paraded through places that Roman Empire would conquer. So it was seen as um, the, uh, the, um, the reason of the state and also a symbol of fertility. And, you know, with that comes the symbol of power, you know, potentia and things like that. So, so it, 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 it has this sort of idea of, you know, um, collectivism, but also of um, pretty fierce individualism as well, because each one of those people, each one of those patriarchs, you know, has a, 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 this sort of um, power over their family and land and things like that. Um, and so with, with fascism, the important thing is that it, it is elitist. It supports, you know, the heroic individual over the sort of like herd-like masses or whatever. And it also promulgates this organic state of patriarchy um, that, is tied to a, a kind of a natural hierarchy, you know? Yeah. So, so it's, 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 um, ultra nationalist, but yeah, it, it, it's specific to Italy in that, in that context. Um, it wasn't necessary. The idea of the Fasquios were not necessarily tied to that same ultra nationalism. A lot of them just took the term league as a as at, at face value basically um and um there were like pretty si- significant there was a pretty significant group that was a leftist group called the Fesquio Operai that I think uh started in Bologna um it started actually quite close to wherever Mussolini was born like 40 miles away and it was uh it was uh enfranchised I think within the Working Men's International um, and as a Bakuninist group, but also kind of merging with the Mazzini nationalist uh, uh, flair of the Risorgimento and things like that. So, yeah, it was in the orbit of the young Italy. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. And and you know that was that was the basis of leftism. And actually, if you look at um, um, the similar things going on, like Young Germany and those yeah. kinds of things, Carboneri and things like that. They weren't always, and and some of the fascists today, I point this out, um, that, you know, like Proudhon was actually anti-Semitic and and he was patriarchal as hell. Um, Karl Marx's on the Jewish question has raised uh, quite a few eyebrows. 
Um, and uh, Bakunin was a raging anti-Semite as well. Yep. So, I mean, you know, the, these these guys that, you know, the left often holds up uh, on a on a kind of a, a pedestal, um, violating, I should add, its own, you know, attempts to be, you know, egalitarian. Um, we're not, did not have the same kind of um, open-eyed understanding of, of where these kinds of uh, hateful tendencies lead. But, you know, you got to maybe forgive them a little bit because they hadn't gone through the Holocaust. Yeah, and I think that there's also... I, there's also a question of class that that is involved in that because you know while somebody like a Bakunin, um, you know while he, he preached what he preached, the sort of the I guess we, in vigorously air quoting the you know the father of anarchism or whatever, but at the same time, I mean, he was from the wealthy landowning class in a deeply reactionary, in fact, the most reactionary king you know uh, 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 empire of Europe, and the ingrained kind of um, anti-Semitism, but also just ingrained sort of uh, patriarchal uh, supremacist thinking was deeply embedded in Bakunin, just as it was in a lot of the, a lot of his contemporaries. Absolutely. And people like, you know, people who sort of like flirt with the boundaries between left and right and like most fascists actually do. is another good example of that. Interesting. Um, although I'm, I don't think that Kropotkin had the same like anti-Semitic sort of attitudes, but I'm not exactly sure. Um, I haven't encountered anything like that of of his writing. But um, the um, the thing about um, um, I forgot what I was saying. Sorry. <laughs> um well I, just the, the the last point and we got to take a break here in a second but just the last point on that is that bringing it bringing it forward you know um you see a lot of the same kinds of themes cropping up not just not just in the decades after world war ii which is kind of where we started talking about this but actually very much getting expression today so i i want to when we come back from break i want to touch on that but just give us a little bit give us a little bit of a um glimpse into how you see these things having morphed in the uh post-soviet period Sure. I think um, the big, you know, a lot of people went for, for Strasserism. Uh, as I explained before, Gregor Strasser uh, wanted to create a, a broad front, uh, kind of like a national front. And uh, also after the war was more interested in playing East against West during the Cold War than in picking a side per se. And that was what became known as the third position, neither capitalist nor marxist but something else and then there were people who were like slightly more of a confused variety like uh jean-francois thiriard uh the belgian um national bolshevik uh so there's a pretty long tradition of national bolshevism Mm -hmm. uh that goes back to the 1920s um and Otto Strasser was actually involved in it as well. But after the war, Jean-Francois Thierry started the... uh, He was really one of the main drivers of national Bolshevism 
changed the name kind of a little bit, sort of tried to renounce fascism and call himself a national communist and embraced Maoism because Mao supported national liberation. And so basically Thierry was talking about how we should have um, European liberation fronts, you know, as well as national liberation in, in keeping with Francis Parker Yaki, one of the most notorious U.S. fascists. And um, so then he adopted this sort of Nazi Maoist slant that he was he was putting forward yeah it was truly bizarre i know it should be completely irrelevant and and throughout most of history they have been but uh, unfortunately in the past 20 years um we've seen a lot more crossover or rather convergence absolutely let's hold off there um let's jump to a break and we'll continue the conversation on the other side of the break fascinating stuff uh stick with us guys we'll be right back Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm ha- I'm chatting with um, Alexander Reed Ross, and we're going really deep into the uh, murky depths of the fascist DNA uh, in Europe and beyond, I suppose. Um, again, Alexander Reed Ross is the editor of a very important anthology, Grabbing Back Against the Global Land Grab from 2014. Uh, you should pick yourself up a copy of that. And his upcoming book, Against the Fascist Creep, coming out this May, I believe, from AK Press. Uh, follow him on Twitter at A. Reed Ross. So um, let's jump back into this. Uh, you Just before the break, you were bringing up what I think is really an important um, strain of fascist thinking today, something that is, I have to say it, unfortunately, below the radar for a lot of people who aren't digging into this and completely um, 
how should I put it, hiding in plain sight, I think is is one way to describe it. So you were talking about national Bolshevism. What exactly is that? You were getting into it a little bit historically. So let's pick up there and then bring it forward to today because we see national Bolshevism, quote unquote, in a variety of forms right now today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, National Bolshevism comes from the Association for the Study of Russian Planned Economy that started out in the 1920s in in Germany with people like Ernst Jünger and um, Nikich and uh, even, uh, to some extent, Georgi Lukács, you know, so they were trying to bring together an understanding between nationalists and communists in order to create a kind of uh, a new alliance between a potential fascist Germany and uh, a nationalist USSR. With the changes that were going on at that time, with uh, Stalin being uh reintroducing uh russian Sov- uh, soviet chauvinism russian chauvinism um ironically of course because he was actually uh georgian um calling russians first among equals for example that kind of thing um it looked kind of propitious for the the german ultra nationalists and even for some of the former members of the white army like uh nikolai uh Ustrialov Ustrialov that's how you say his name um who was a uh, um sort of theorist there's a large uh, expatriate groups from the Soviet Union from the Civil War and they were trying to reintroduce sort of spoon-feed um nationalism back into Russia and um, that was their idea of like the national Bolshevik kind of like a Volkish uh, Narodnik, you know, like uh, uh, um, uh, Soviet Union that uh, was in touch with its, you know, um, um, traditions and things like that. The, even the Orthodox Church and whatnot. I, I was just going to say, I was just going to ask if I could just add that one point yeah. that yeah. that is a critical element to all of this is that. With the uh, Russian Revolution and the establishment of uh, of Bolshevik control in the Soviet Union, uh, you saw the destruction of the organized church and the church, in many ways, the bastion of reactionary politics and reactionary forms of chauvinism and nationalism and all of these things. And so, what you're getting at is also an attempt to re to to sort of infuse the the uh, the culture with that element minus the actual institutionalization of it in the church. Yeah. Um, and then later the, the church would sort of come back with Pamyat and, and groups like that in, in the seventies, you know, and I think Brezhnev was like one of the ones who really kind of helped the church and actually uh, throughout the, the uh, Soviet Union after the Stalin period and things like that, that there were national Bolshevik factions within the government who were constantly pressing for the interests of the church to return. Um, and um, Pamyat, you know, which means memory, I think. Yes. Um, the Pamyat movement uh, um, became the driving force of uh, ultra-nationalists. A lot of them call themselves after the Black Hundreds, who were the people who were 
prosecuting these uh, pogroms on uh, the Ukrainian Jews um, during the late 19th century, early early 20th century. So um, they were, you know, descriptively anti-Semitic, sort of uh, proto-fascist, ultra-nationalist movement um, that also had a lot of support, actually, in, in Western Europe with Jean-François Thierry, the um, Belgian national Bolshevik, who is the guy who actually set up the European Liberation Front Part 2. The first part had been uh, uh, Francis Parker Yaki, and then the second part was uh, Thierry with um, the National Revolutionary Faction, I think it was called, a, a Troy Southgate's thing. And uh, the American Front, and there was a group in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and their uh, their plot basically was to um, develop these sort of ties between uh, Western nations and also with uh, Russia. And um, uh, I think one of the big guys that um, Thierry had in mind was uh, Nikolai Ceausescu. Mm-hmm. whose regime was, was again, described as national communist. Um, so there was some sort of sense among European fascists that this was indeed very possible, that um, the destruction of the communist force would not necessarily mean the destruction of um, um, the Soviet Union per se. It could actually just sort of metamorphosize all of Europe into a, a fascist um, nation of nations or, you know, um, a, a kind of a, a united states of Europe, which was in the the Nazis, like, 21-point, 25-point plan or whatever it was. It's interesting. You mentioned the Black Hundreds in Ukraine, and there's sort of a bizarre kind of divergence because on the one hand, some of those tendencies ended up being, you know, like the fathers and, and, and grandfathers of the Nazi collaborators like Stepan Bandera and the Ukrainian, the national Ukrainian organization. And a lot of the, you know, the, the, uh, the, um, the SS Galician, uh, factions that worked with the Nazis, but, it had morphed by that point because the Black Hundreds, which you mentioned, they were like pro-Czar. They were like worshippers of the Czar, worshippers of this sort of uh, deeply reactionary, uh, feudalist kind of tradition. But, you know, it had morphed by, by, you know, a couple of decades later. And then at the same time, you also had a lot of the other, you know, uh, factions who went in the totally opposite direction, you know? And and it's just this, like, bizarre synthesis that you've seen in... The reason I bring that up is because today, oftentimes when we talk about these kind of fascist uh, and and pseudo-fascist or whatever you want to call them movements, whether they're followers of Alexander Dugin, whether, you know, whomever, they do have this bizarre sort of synthesis of left and right. And that is kind of, in many ways, the foundational um, worldview that they have. Well, there you go. Yeah, that's the foundational worldview of fascism itself. I mean, the first national socialist was an ultra nationalist. Uh, I mean, it depends. The guy who coined the term is um, uh, Bars, Maurice Bars. 
um, a, a notorious ultra nationalist from France, um, and he said that the first national socialist was um, the Marquis de Mors, so the he, which, who was a famous duelist and adventurer in uh, the fin de siècle uh, France, um, and uh, the the whole development of national socialism comes about through the Dreyfus affair in France, where you had the, um, uh, I think it was an army captain who was framed for passing on uh, secret information to the Prussians uh, by Esterhazy and this group of scheming um, uh, military jingoists that wanted to rattle sabers against the Germans. And so um, it was this big anti-Semitic uh, affair. There were people in the streets chanting death to the Jews. And um, basically the left organized under, uh, you know, spokespeople like Emil Zola uh, to, um, to confront anti-Semitism. And then gradually after the Dreyfus affair, the anti-Semitic part just sort of started to erode and um, key revolutionary syndicalist thinkers like George Sorrell um, went sort of started to walk toward the nationalist side. Uh, Sorrell started to participate with his, uh, his sort of acolytes in journals uh, like the journal of the Cirque P uh, Proudhon and uh, independence and things like that, and and Sorrel, with 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 ultra nationalists like Bars and Charles Morris and and people like that, and um, people in um, Italy, you know, revolutionary syndicalists in Italy were also paying attention to George Sorrel's stuff, and kind of imported it um, to, you know, work with these sort of mythic ideas of violence and uh, the general strike and to kind of interpret it in a specifically Italian way. And so there were Italian ultra-nationalists, I think uh, Panunzio and um, a few others, working with uh, Italian syndicalists like um, De Ambres and... Um, uh, Arturo Labriola, and they sort of created the the laboratory uh, with futurists, you know, Marinetti and people like that, mm -hmm. um, that would transform into fascism. So it does come from a fusion of left and right. And if you look at actually Germany at the same time, the same stuff was happening. It's It's really unnecessary to point out Sorel and Moraz and say that that was the beginning of fascism. Although, you know, really, if you look at Italy in the Italian case, it was. But if you look at Bohemia, for example, which was a contested territory between the Czechs and the Germans, ethnically speaking, um, with the Sudetenland, of course, and places like that, um, there's the same kind of stuff happening there. That was where the original German Workers' Party, I shouldn't say the original, but the forerunning German Workers' Party emerged to basically militate against Czech workers um, and in favor of uh, German, uh, basically German social welfare chauvinism. Um, and in Austria, similar things were happening with Kurt Luger. I think it was Kurt. Anyway, similar things were happening with Luger 
who was uh, um, denied the the position of mayor of Vienna several times by um, the uh, the emperor of Austria, Franz Josef, because he was so anti-Semitic. And then, you know, finally, Franz Josef gave him the job because he was voted. And um, he was one of Hitler's greatest, rather not greatest, but one of Hitler's most important influences. One of Hitler's greatest hits. <laughs> right? yeah. So it's, it's a really bad album. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, but, but, banned uh, by critics. Yeah, banned by critics. Exactly. What is this Spinal Tap thing where he's like, uh, um, on what day did God rest and why could he not have been resting on the same day that that album was produced? <laughs> but um, the yeah. So anyway, the, the, the thing is like, yeah, you can we, we call it fascism because obviously the, the most vocal you know, um, proponent of it was Mussolini and, and it's kind of, Italy was the kind of like laboratory where these ideas were coming together in an intellectual format. But obviously you can also point to the right wing populism going on, uh, in, um, Austria and in Bohemia and, and find many of the, the same currents. Well, so. and, and, and one of the running themes that you see today in particular, too, is um, – and it's actually quite a, a good way to identify various fascist tendencies is, for instance, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about uh, fascists from Russia, whether you're talking about fascists from Germany, whether you're talking about fascists from the United States. One thing they will all point to is that the, that the Bolsheviks – were little more than a Jew conspiracy, that they were all sure. Jews run by Jews for the purposes of uh, instituting a Jewish plot to destroy Europe and to take over the world. Now, that was, and I mean, I I wish I was exaggerating, but that's actually very much uh, part of the sort of mythology around all of this. And that... Absolutely. That is, in many ways, I think, one of the ways that fascism expresses itself today. Now, let me give one other example because I want to, before we run out of time, I really do want to talk about contemporary fascist tendencies and fascist formations. Um, you have of uh, disparate fascist groups in Europe that are doing exactly today what you're what you were just describing, you know, 80, 90, 100 years ago. For instance, Golden Dawn in Greece. If you if you follow Golden Dawn and all throughout this austerity uh, collapse in Greece, if you didn't know who they were and you didn't know who was speaking, you would swear that at least half if not more of the stuff they say is like communist i mean it's it's <laughs> it's left and then you start to hear the other stuff and then when they talk about immigrants and all you know all of the rest of that and you know when i was chatting with Yanis varoufakis um a few years back long before he became the uh the finance minister there um he told me a story about driving in athens and listening to an interview on the radio with an economist and being like wow well yeah i you know i agree with this guy he's pretty you know he's pretty on the ball and then he finds out that the guy is golden dawn a nazi i mean a real greek nazi and yeah. imagine the impact that that kind of uh, uh, discourse has, even on somebody as well, you know, well read and 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 well versed as somebody like Avara Fakis. Now, imagine if you're a working person, 
Imagine if you're just a regular person and you can instantly identify with that and you see it over and over again. One of the ways that the fascists worm their way in is through left populist rhetoric. Absolutely. Well, it's 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 just populist rhetoric itself. I mean, populist or maybe rhetoric. traditionally left, we could say. You know. Yeah, and and populist. That's that's the whole nature of populism is that it's it's both left and right. I mean, I think um, Golden Dawn is is very much a, a, a neo-fascist group. I mean, there's really no disputing that. And last year they got what like ten percent of the uh, national elections. I mean, it was the third their- leading party. It was their best showing uh, ever, I think. Yep. Um, and uh, but you look at these other uh, places. I mean, Svoboda and Ukraine used to be called the Social National Party of yep. Ukraine. I mean, they were quite blatantly fascist until they had some sit downs with Jean Marie Le Pen, and he kind of set them down the 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 the, the road to righteousness. If you look at uh, the Front National, you know Le Pen's outfit. They started out. Um, from fascism, um, there was the the new order yeah. that created the Front National. Similar, the FPO in um, Austria, uh, they started out as the VDU, which was a group of uh, disenfranchised Nazis after the war, who the Social Democrats created as a voting block in order to undermine the traditional uh, right wing party. And that was one of the stupidest betrayals that the Social Democrats have ever done in Austria, I guess. Um, but you look at other groups like Slovakia has a neo-Nazi party called uh, the People's Party, Our Slovakia, which won 23 uh, percent recently. Yep. Um, it's really, really not a good scene. And then, you know, Jobbik is is Jobbik is one of the big parties. UKIP got was leading i think it, it, ukip won the 2014 eu parliamentary elections in in england beating out both labor and conservative parties with 26 percent of the vote and i mean there does need to be a distinction with ukip and other parties like it where they're more like the u.s radical right than blatant fascism you know they're not now, UKIP, you know, UKIP falls into a sort of a Ron Paul sort of category, which is, I don't know if we could necessarily, well, Ron Paul straddles that line too, for a lot of other reasons, oh, God, but, yeah. but exactly. you know, including like, you know, the Southern racist stuff. But I mean to say, exactly. I mean to say not, you know, not goose stepping Nazis, a different yeah. kind of right fascism. I, I think I think I think what it is is it's the fascist creep. I think uh, like the Libertarian Party. If you look at it today, it's a total basket case. I mean, Augustus Sol Invictus is a one hundred percent fascist uh, who pretty much believes in eugenics, like a a weird sort of like variety of of popular driven eugenics. And he is running under the Florida Libertarian Party ticket. Um, so it's it's not that he's a libertarian per se, as one recent article by uh, Shane Burley uh, that was put out um, talks about. It's, it's that the Libertarian Party is an advantageous route for fascists to go through because it's almost like nothing, no discourse can fall outside of the libertarian party's like 
wing nuttery. Yeah, it's know? everything. It's everything from like Austrian school, you know, neoliberal ideologues to un unreconstructed uh, Confederates. You know yeah. what I mean, and everything in between. And by the way, I did intend to the the pun unreconstructed Confederates. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for uh, that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, there is definitely a crisis today with uh, the the modern political spectrum. I mean, the thing is that neoliberalism is is uh, in is is at the root of the crisis. It it, it has not followed through on the promises that it it uh, it proposed. And then when the socialist parties were given a turn. They didn't follow through either. They capitulated to the same programs of austerity and actually imperialism abroad. Oh, well, that's what I was going to say. Exactly. Yeah. So, so people don't trust the the socialist party, um, and people don't trust the the neoliberals. And so, the the alternative right now, the left has not been able to form, you know, a viable um, sort of more revolutionary. Uh, thinking block. So the the viable alternative is um, is the populist radical right, which is infested with fascists, where it isn't completely dominated by fascists. Well, and 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 those fascists, though, and this is really the interesting thing that I want people to pay attention to. Those fascists, many of them, argue vigorously for a an, an alliance between the far right and the far left they they yeah. argue and this is dugan right this is alexander dugan fourth positionism that the unity is the the quote what he calls quote unquote the periphery meaning the far right and the far left against the center right and the center left which they describe as the the great specter in europe being quote unquote liberalism and quote unquote multiculturalism and so they're talking about, you know, the so-called traditional left and the so-called alternative right coming together. But as you've correctly pointed out throughout this conversation, that's nothing more than textbook fascism. Right. It's I've heard it described as global apartheid. I think that that's an appropriate way of discussing it. Um, they call it, they use like fluffy words like uh, ethno-differentialism. Yeah. You know? Civilizationalism. Uh, yeah, ethno-pluralism. Yeah. Um, and really what they're, what, what they're really talking about is, you know, France for the, it's the yes. same old thing. France yeah. for the French, Algeria for the Algerians. Darkies stay in the darky countries. Whiteies yep. stay in the whitey countries. Yep, exactly. And, um, uh, I mean, Dugan is, is kind of weird because he's also got this sort of like occultish, um, spiritualist sort of, uh, magical orientation, uh, and is very interested in you know Turkey and um, uh, the Euro uh, Euro Asianism, which would connect um, Russia all the way down to the Indian Ocean. And um, there is some pushback by other fascists in Europe, like Guillaume Fay, who believe in Euro Siberianism, and in Russia, it's they call it White Russia, you know. Because they don't want anything to do with the rest of Asia. They just want, you know, um, exactly. the Paris, Berlin, Moscow axis or whatever, you know. So yep. um, that's that's sort of like an interesting tension within the geopolitics of the fascist movement right now. Well, I but, Sorry, yeah, go ahead. no, no, I, I, go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, Faye is, is, is also 
continually meshing left wing ideas with right wing ideas. Um, he's one of the the promulgators of the uh, block identitaire, um, and uh, they are you know I think they came out of Unité Radicale, which was uh, one of the progenitors of the um, the group of fascists that was from all around Europe fighting on behalf of uh, I can't I, can't, I think they were fighting on behalf of the Donbass now but I, I I can't even really yeah they 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 were I think but anyway it's a yeah, it's that's a whole other yeah. Serbians and French people and stuff like that who were you know um, for whatever reason you know involved in this uh, civil war that's also infested with fascists. Yeah, and that's I was going to say that that's sort of one of the tensions too in 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 that realm has to do with the fascists of the Dugin Eurasian variety versus the Russian specifically Russian ethno-nationalist fascists who are supporting the Nazi elements in Ukraine, the pro-Western Nazi elements. So there's this bizarre split on the fascist right inside of Europe where some of them side with the uh, the, the pro-Russian uh, Donbass rebels and some of them side with the anti-Russian Kiev uh, oligarchs and Nazis like Azov Battalion and the Banderites and all of the rest of them. So they're, just as you mentioned, there's this very interesting sort of tension on the fascist right. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, uh, it's, it's quite, it's quite odd. I mean, there are a lot of different sort of ways of, of going with this. I mean, the whole legacy of Bandara is so, so odd, you know, it's like he was involved, like you were saying in, in SS deployments, there was a SS Mockingbird deployment where the, one of the leaders of it from Germany, Oberlander, ended up, uh, as part of Konrad Adenauer's um uh government uh, he was like the minister for refugees um i think a third of adenauer's cabinet was uh uh like unreconstructed nazis um so the the issue of uh uh nazis and and post war germany has always been a little bit um uh, disconcerting but especially with this ukraine stuff where they're they've germany and um, a lot of, I mean, pretty much all of NATO has been supporting uh, the ultra-nationalists in, in Ukraine. And they have been, but, but you know, it's, it's, it's in a way, Yanu, Yanukovych uh, has been, it's sort of blowback for him because when he took power, he was trying to revitalize um, a lot of the old sort of myths about Ukraine. Um, so they were reincorporating um, Bandara well, into that was, their textbooks. that was under that was under Yushchenko. Oh, Yushchenko, yeah, yeah, Yushchenko did it too. Yeah, that was the Orange Revolution in two thousand four. Yushchenko is the one who uh, gave the posthumous um, uh, order of patriotism or, or national order of patriotism or whatever it is to Bandera and basically rehabilitated right. Bandera's image. And then Yanukovych didn't exactly 
Uh, I mean, he rescinded that, but it wasn't like, you know, he, you know, uh, sent sent uh, Bandera back down the memory hole either. You know, so there's this there's this sort of weird Yanukovych had this quasi pro-Russian orientation for practical political reasons. And he was pushing back against the Yushchenko-Timoshenko uh, alliance, which was backed by the United States. So there is a geopolitical uh, framework within which all of this was operating. Operating. Right, right. Um, anyway, we're we're running out of time, and I can't, I cannot let you go without with. Uh, we can't have a whole hour's conversation about fascism in the world today without mentioning the name Donald Trump, can we? <laughs> I mean, I think that this is a very important question because so many people are chiming in on: Is Trump a fascist? Is he not a fascist? Whatever. I think that that's probably of secondary importance. I mean, I, I want to get your take on it as well. But what I what I consider to be the real issue here is not so much Donald Trump. It's the base that's being mobilized around Donald Trump that really is not about Trump himself, but it's about an ideology and a sort of a discourse that's now, uh, let's say, above ground, you know, and that is what is yeah. particularly disconcerting about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so much about uh, Donald Trump's refusal to acknowledge his knowledge of uh, uh, David Duke that, you know, creeps me out. It's like this guy, everybody knows who David Duke is. Nobody gives David Duke a platform except for American Renaissance and, you know, this awful sort of convergence of uh, paleoconservatism and uh, na- white nationalism and fascism. And then, you know, here comes David Duke, you know, practically dismounting from his, his like hooded horse to you know, <laughs> give Trump his, his uh, thumbs up. And then you get Trump just saying, oh, I don't know that much about fascism. And then it turns out that right before going on CNN, he had tweeted out a Mussolini quote, which was a pr- from a prank account, but that just sort of gives him an out, doesn't it? Yeah, so, yeah exactly. <laughs> and then and then you have uh, this sort of like militia group scaring the pants off of everybody, saying uh, they're you know the lions of Trump, and using the exact same quotation from Mussolini in order to like present themselves as a paramilitary group in defense of Trump rallies. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a chilling reality when you really look at it. I mean, they mentioned that Trump already has a security team and I don't even want to know who's involved in organizing that. But I mean, Trump himself from his, from his like early days taking over his dad's empire where he was being, uh, uh, prosecuted for, um, racist, um, real estate practices and then countersued under the advice of his lawyer, um, um, Roy, Roy Kahn. Kahn. Roy yeah, Kahn. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 Kahn was um, was also part of Steve Rubell's clique, right? That's basically how he met Trump. Was from the Manhattan swingers nightlife, and it, interestingly enough, uh, Edward Limonov was actually part of the same scene. Like this, you know. It's well, just... and 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 the other the other wild card in that is Trump's dealings with various mobsters, various uh, Italian mobsters in New York and in Philadelphia 
through his Atlantic City dealings and all of those mobsters, particularly um, Saler- Fat, was it Fat Tony Salerno and yeah. uh, some of the others who were represented in court every single time by Roy Cohn. And so <laughs> he was kind of the, the mafia lawyer and Trump's dealings with all of that circle and with Cohn, they're all interconnected. And then on top of that, you add in the fact that Trump is directly connected to a number of Russian mobsters, as you were as you were alluding to. So there's this very <laughs> bizarre network within which Trump has operated for a long time. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, he's kind of yeah. And and then there's the Roger Stone thing, you know, where he uh, he's he's been pretty well acquainted with Roger Stone for a long time. Of course, Roger Stone, one of the the gray eminences of the Republican Party, also involved in the Florida Libertarian Party that spawned um, Saul Invictus, and uh, uh, yeah, there's there are all of these sort of like dark, shady corners that Trump has been inhabiting for quite a long time. And then there was a the Central Park Five. Remember that? Like Trump, Trump coming out and saying like these kids needed to go like to prison for life or whatever. Um, and then it turned out that they, of course, hadn't done anything like they were innocent. So, I, I mean, yeah, he's he's he, and and then, you know, fast forward, quite, you know, a couple of decades. And then there he is talking about um, uh, Obama's birth certificate. So he's always been this kind of like disgusting figure of, of this sort of like playboy Manhattan social life and like this. uh um, total elitism and uh um i don't know yeah it's a and where where i want to uh bring this if i could attempt in a in a very sort of um roundabout way to kind of bring this all full circle and tie it together because one of the things that we're seeing around trump is this political confusion that a lot of people have when they look at him and they say well wait a second this guy's not really, uh, you know, a Republican right winger. A lot of what he's saying is actually far to the left of Hillary Clinton, and in some senses, sometimes even to the left of Bernie Sanders. And so they're like, "Hey, maybe this guy might be something, you know, interesting for for America. Maybe this is something better than what we're than what we're typically accustomed to seeing with the imperialists of both Democratic and Republican parties." And to me. I can't help but think about that line of thinking going back to the early part of this conversation where we're talking about the nature of fascism as drawing on left and right populism. Yeah, um, it's, it, it is, but it's also like really specific because otherwise you're just a, a, a right-wing populist, you know? Because so, so with fascism, you also really have to get into like the rebirth of the, the national myth. You mean like you making know? America great again? Exactly. That, <laughs> that is really where I think. It yeah, no, exactly. That's right. That's really what stands out to me is like um, the the mythopoetic aspect of what he's doing, because, you know, like with the wall, he's even talked about like, it's going to be a great wall, a you know, big beautiful wall, a Trump wall. Yeah, exactly. So 
like what we're talking like that's that's building the myth and everything about trump is it's not just the brand it's the brand as a myth and if you look at his uh hotels and things like that if you look at like what he's actually like done in terms of like the corporate world it's very much a modernist approach um and i don't know it's it's a it's it, it, it if you're a if you're a radical right populist, you tend to be more of a, like a traditional sort of Christian sort of you know like family value stuff. But Trump is not. You know, Trump has this elitist sort of um, um, uh, bravado about him, and this return of a of a pre Civil War uh, idea that is a dog whistle to the, the Patriot movement. Yeah. And I think David Nywert was talking about the Patriot movement and saying that it was uh, proto fascist because it hadn't received a leader yet. But mm-hmm. other than that, it does have this kind of palingenetic myth or this, this myth of a, of a national rebirth. Um, and, uh, and that myth is a sovereign citizen sort of, uh, we are going back to the constitution uh, the first ten amendments, but all the other uh, amendments are, you know, need to be stricken from. Absolutely, yeah, especially and, that one that outlawed slavery. Right, the thirteenth and then fourteenth amendment. <laughs> the, the, yeah. yeah, the thirteenth amendment is the one that outlawed slavery, and the fourteenth amendment is the one that um, basically meant that um, nobody could be deprived of civil rights, regardless right. of what local courts decided. And and those are the two that they absolutely hate the most. And 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 that's what basically Trump's campaign is is pointing out, you know, when he and he's even in Mobile, Alabama, in one of his early speeches, he was saying, we need to get rid of the 14th Amendment. You know, uh, there are ways of doing that. We don't have to go through the courts. We need to find a way to get rid of the 14th Amendment. Yeah. And it's, it was and it was framed under the uh, umbra- the, the, the banner of the anchor babies. Right. And it was like all of that, all all of that, basically, in other words, in other words, basically saying we should be able to uh, single people out based on their skin color, based on their ethnic heritage and toss them out. Sure, absolutely. Uh, Deprive people of their civil rights. I mean, there's no other way. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just. Yeah. And that's that's the biggest thing is, uh, you know, this this sort of like uh, patriot movement developed out of the posse comitatus. I know you don't have a lot of time, but like the posse comitatus oh, long was found, since out of time. But go ahead. Yeah, the, the posse comitatus was founded by um, a couple of guys, one of whom was uh, the attache for the, the silver shirts of Oregon. He was like the national attache to to Pelly. Um, of so so we're talking about the descendant of literal interwar fascism. Um, so there's there's it's really difficult to actually try to parse the patriot movement out from the legacy of fascism in the United States. And when Trump is actually um, you know raising their banner quite clearly and embracing their movement quite openly. And refusing to, you know, denounce um, people like David Duke, who's out and out fascist. He's really, um, again, it's really difficult. Fire. It, well, it, it's it, of course he is. Fascism is is you know the flame. It is like the yeah. thing that will burn you. <laughs> you That's should right. not 
Um, but um, the thing about um, it, it just makes it very difficult to parse Trump out from fascism. I mean, the, I, I don't see how I've, I've seen people sort of convincingly say that, oh, Trump is a conservative with fascist trappings like that's basically what this is this isn't full-blown fascism conservatism with fascist trappings and i think like what you have to do here is you have to say well what situation were we in before trump before trump did we have a huge fascist movement in this country that Trump really needed to actually like appeal to as a conservative, or is it the other way around that we had actually a large, angry conservative movement that Trump has been, you know, insinuating fascism into and which has become increasingly fascist through the Trump campaign. And I think we've seen the latter. And in that capacity, I think that there's, ample evidence to say that he is a a part of the fascist creep. I totally agree with that. And uh, the final point I just want to make before we go is that with all of that being said, what really is going to, if I, you know, if I could say flip the fascist switch is if there is a major global economic crisis, as many are predicting, including a lot of highly respected economists, including, you know, Michael Hudson and and, and many others who have talked about this, who write about this ceaselessly, that we may be on the precipice of an economic crisis and potential collapse on a scale far larger than 2008 because of everything that's happened since 2008, quantitative easing and all of the rest of these policies, that it's driven it to such a point that a potentially catastrophic economic collapse could very well happen. Now, if that happened, all of these elements of fascism, all having fallen into place all over Europe and in the United States as well, then you add that into the mix, and now we know what we're gonna, what we're talking about, what we're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, fascism comes out of desperation and anxiety. Those are the the two. Uh, uh, ingredients of, of, of fascism uh, on, a, on a kind of affective level. And uh, nothing stirs that more than people not being able to get enough food to eat. I mean, yeah, um, yeah. Hitler's Nazi party went from relatively minuscule uh, electoral returns in, you know, 28 to by 1930 having, you know, meetings with Hindenburg. So um, the whole the whole reason for its ascent was the Great Depression. Yep, there's, there's really no doubt about that. So That's right. and and in the United States as well, had we not had a militant uh, communist movement as well as a uh, president like an FDR who was able to kind of diffuse a lot of that and you know more or less. Uh, depending on who you ask, save capitalism or, you know, infuse it with a sort of social democratic veneer or whatever. But had the situation been slightly different, had Wall Street gotten its way and had their sort of uh, fascist style coup, we might have seen fascism on a global scale. Yeah, there's no denying that. I mean, um, I, I, I I don't know how feasible that coup you know, would have been, uh, so it's, you know, it's talking about things on a hypothetical level at that point. And also, you know, when FDR took power, I mean, he would, he was only popular because of his 
his uh, left wing presentation of his politics. Right. Um, I mean, there there really wasn't a way that, uh, in my opinion, looking back at it, I don't think that there was a way that uh, the liberal sort of gr- groups, the the liberal candidates, would have actually won. Um, I think that um, the elites kind of had to settle with FDR, you know, so he was kind of the the right guy for that moment. And um, that's why he was kind of shoehorned in there. Um, Whereas today, I don't think we have the same kind of field, Um, even though, you know, the liberals are, uh, you know, have a terrible reputation. Um, I don't see Sanders getting in the White House, no, um, no, no, and I uh, I see it as a, a, a toss up between Clinton and Trump. Of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna just say probably Clinton. I think people are gonna kind of get cold feet about Trump, but I'm I'm not. That's my tentative analysis right now. Um, but they're they're they're, I, they're both so scary. I th- exactly exactly, but I, at the same time I. I would I would definitely rather not deal with Trump. Um, I mean, like Trump is insidious to a degree that I don't think I've seen in politics in my lifetime, and that's that's even including Reagan and 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 Bush Jr. You know, I mean, yeah. like we've had a lot of incredibly insidious people. The scary thing, the scary thing about about this scenario is that if you're looking at a Trump and uh, Trump versus Clinton. I mean, which is which is more likely to start a large scale foreign war versus which is more likely <laughs> to mobilize a fascist movement in the in the U.S. You know, sure. and it's like Jesus, is that really the choice before us? I think it is. Well, and you know, I yeah, I mean, the thing about Trump is that Trump is really just this sort of like complete disruption of a, a business as usual. You know, he's a sort he, just his, like that's his most appealing feature for most people. Yeah, just like Lawrence Dennis was talking about in the coming American fascism. There's this out elite that really believes that they can get a, and and actually knows that they can get away with whatever they want to do. Um, they don't really have to bother about the laws because the laws are kind of made for them, and so they can do whatever they want as long as they have a great lawyer. So, you know, why bother having laws anyway? Or or rather, why you know, why bother having the constitution when the elites control everything anyway? So, let's just go back to a simpler time when the elites were the elites and the rules were, you know, orderly and and uh, understood their role in in society. Viva and feudalism. I- That's the on that note, we will we will have to leave it there. Alexander Reed Ross arguing in favor of feudalism. That's the takeaway right here. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, damn, that was a long conversation. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with this as far as editing goes. But uh, with all of that said, Alexander Reed Ross, he is the editor of the very important anthology Grabbing Back Against the Global Land Grab 2014 um, and the coming book, which we've really kind of uh, been exploring a lot of the themes of here today, Against the Fascist Creep coming out this may from ak press uh, he is the co-founder uh co- sorry co-founding moderator of the earth first newswire follow him on twitter at a reed ross alexander reed ross thanks for coming on counterpunch radio thank you very much eric thanks for having me 